this uh, this morning. Uh, Freeport, Illinois, for those of you who don't know, is at the very northwestern corner of Illinois, uh, 15 minutes from Wisconsin, home of the Wisconsin Badgers, which I know are fighting words around here, but I'm an avid fan. I love Wisconsin football. Um, I, uh, yeah, I, one class away from finishing my master's, and it's only, I, I have this amazing ability to squeeze like two-year degrees into six. Um, <laughs> It's really hard to squeeze it in there. It's like barely enough time. Um, <laughs> I did the same thing with undergrad. You know, I just I like to take the long. Maybe some of you are like me and just maybe aren't the best students, but you still like to learn. So it's like I like to be in the classroom. I'm just not very uh, good at it sometimes. But um, uh, just a little bit about myself. I, uh, I married my high school sweetheart, Amanda, um, who's sick this morning. I thought she'd be here with me. Um, we have a lovely daughter. Uh, she just turned one. Uh, and so her name is Madison, and uh, we're really grateful. We're still in that, like, can't believe we're parents. Um, we, we, you know, biologically speaking, we weren't supposed to be parents. Uh, we found out uh, early in our marriage that we weren't able to have children, and so we actually adopted Madison um, from Florida, which Florida is a great state, and it's beautiful, except she was born in July. And so <laughs> Madison's quite, or, you know, Florida's quite hot in, in, in July, and so last summer was, was uh Warm, rather warm, and so uh, I like to say that I, I'm a man who has hobbies. I, I like barbecuing. I like, you know, I have, I have a couple smokers, some pits, things like that. I love hunting and fishing, and, and it usually comes with big dogs. Unfortunately, my wife won that argument, and so I'm a proud owner of not one but two miniature dachshunds. So, <laughs> yes, so Augie and Harley are their names, and I wanted a motorcycle, uh, but. My wife got me a, a black and silver miniature dachshund and named him Harley. So that, that would be, that's kind of the story of my dog. So um, I'm one of the, the pastors at Park Hills Church in Freeport, I'm student ministries pastor. And so I get a privilege to work um, with families and work with, with students a lot. And um, we prioritize family a lot at Park Hills Church. And so I was grateful when I heard that today's Family Sunday and families are with us. I, I think it's a great thing. Um, Today, um, we're going to start looking in, in the book of Luke, and, and the reality is, is there are parts of the story, parts of the, the, the uh, Bible that we hear, and we, we just kind of know the stories, and we kind of hear things uh, like, oh, okay, we're going to learn this story. But I, I think there's something amazing about Scripture, how even though we've heard maybe some of the same stories over and over again, God has a chance to reveal truth Every time we read Scripture, the, the Bible is living, it's active, it's vibrant, it, it, it comes alive. Um, and the reality is, is even something like today, like the Good Samaritan, um, when we hear things, uh, maybe the same story we learned in Sunday school 50 years ago, whatever it is, um, the reality is, is, is I believe that Scripture does come alive and that we are able to learn um, from it. And so first off... Anytime we look at scripture, I, w- I want to look at authors. I want to look at the background. I want to look at what's going on. And we can't just kind of read the text without knowing the background. And so Luke, Luke is a man from Antioch, Syria. He was a physician by profession. He was a disciple of the apostles. And he later accompanied Paul until his martyrdom. And having neither a wife nor a child, he served the Lord without distraction. He fell asleep in Boeotia at the age of 84, full of the Holy Spirit. And moved by that same Holy Spirit, Luke composed all of this gospel in the districts around Achaia. He wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts kind of as a two-part book. They're separated for us, so we have the gospels together and we have the book of Acts together. 
Uh, but really, it's important to look at Luke and Acts as kind of the same book, um, two different parts. He was meticulous with his details. He was very trustworthy. You see Luke say things like, I have seen this with my own eyes, and so you can trust what I am saying. And looking at the Good Samaritan today is such a, a small piece of the book, and yet it's profound when we take away from it and look to see what God has for us. So this is Luke 10. We're going to start off in verse 25. Uh, behold, anytime you see the word behold, we have to like get it, it catches our attention. Behold, a lawyer stood to put him to the test, him being Jesus, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, lawyer, this, we have to understand, this is not a legal practitioner. This is not like, you know, divorce lawyers or like car accident lawyers. This, this is not like what we think of as lawyers. This is rather an interpreter or, or doctors of the Mosaic law. This would be a lawyer is dealing specifically with the Torah. It was a Jewish scholar or a scribe. So this lawyer stood up to Jesus to put him to the test saying, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And we look, eternal life, this understanding is to enter the kingdom of God. You see, realize Jewish history would tell us that Jews just kind of believe you walk through life and when you pass, you just, your soul just kind of keeps walking into eternity. And this idea of heaven and hell is a little different. We see Sheol, which means pit. Um, the depth, the darkness, that's kind of their, their view of hell. And heaven is this idea, this kingdom of God. But it's not really fleshed out that much in the Old Testament in very many places. And so it's, the scribe is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This idea of as, as I keep walking, I keep living. And what happened right before this, this text is really, really important, actually. You see, Jesus sends out the 72 Two by two by two. They cry, woe to the unrepentant cities. We're told that they, they, were, they were instructed to shake the dust off their sandals if the city rejected them, having no part with them. And then Jesus rejoices in the Father's will, and he says this, but it's not going to be on the screen. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, listen, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. And to hear what you hear, but they did not hear it. And so all of a sudden, those disciples go out and they do all these things. And then we see, and then a lawyer stands up to Jesus. It says, well, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 26, he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Understand, this is a man whose sole job is to know the law. He's a lawyer. He understands the law. He interprets the law. He helps the other Jewish people deal with the law. And Jesus says, what's written in the law? It's, it's kind of like asking a professional something about their profession. It, it, duh, he should know these things, right? The Messiah begins with the law. This is the Torah. Remember, this is 613 laws we're talking about. You have 248 positive laws and 365 negative laws, one for each day of the year. It's crazy. These are a lot of laws. And we shortened down the Ten Commandments, right? And throughout the Bible, and really if you think about us, we go from 613 laws to Ten Commandments so then you get to one guy saying, what's the greatest commandment? It's like we always want to get to the point. We have all these laws. Just tell me what I need to do to be good. 
Anyone ever have those thoughts before? Just tell me what I need to do, and I'll be good. Right? We have, these, we have these moments, and it's all throughout Scripture. We're not alone. We always need a condensed version. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus asked him. 27. He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer here is quoting Deuteronomy 6, the Shema. As a side note, I firmly believe the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, is the foundation to family ministry. Uh, I really believe that God has given just clear instruction of how to have a godly home and how to minister to your family. He says, I love the Lord your God with everything. Understand here, let's look, let's look at some of these parts. We can read heart, soul, mind, and strength, but let's, let's look. This idea of heart, everyone put your hand on your heart. I'm, I'm interactive, I'm sorry. Put your hand, we do this, right? right? We do this. If you were Jewish, it's not that you didn't know your heart was there, but when I said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, you would think about like your guts, which sounds weird. But let me ask a question. Some of us have had the pleasure of being in love. We've had the pleasure of finding the one. And what happens to our stomach? We get butterflies, flutters. She walks in the room. <gasps> right? You know what I'm saying? This idea, this flutter in our stomach, right? They would have thought this emotions and the will and the deepest convictions come from your stomach. Your heart is, is what they would have seen. And so love the Lord your God with all of your emotions, all of your will, your deepest convictions, your soul. Well, this is the immaterial part of a person's being. With everything that's immaterial, love the Lord your God. With your mind, it's your reason, your rationale. And then strength. Now, only the Gospel of Matthew lacks this word in here. But this understanding is how a person uses the ability and the power that they have. This would be like you're a boss and you have authority. Love the Lord your God with all the authority you've been given. For us men, this is how we pastor our homes whether we're in the ministry or lay leaders or we're just church attenders, if we're in Christ, God's given us clear instruction of how to pastor our homes. Love the Lord your God with all your strength. 28, he said to him, you have answered correctly. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. You will live. Jesus here is saying, do this. He's not saying, okay, understand this. He's saying, do this and you will live. And the lawyer is picked into arguing with Jesus. And Jesus now has kind of allowed him to win. You know what I'm saying? He's allowed him to win for a moment. Uh, Jesus here, instead of giving the lawyer something to chew on, Jesus just simply says, you're right. You've answered correctly. Now do it. Now do it. Then you will live. Maybe the lawyer's like, all right, I got this. We're good. All right. But no, what's it say in 29? But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus just said, you're right. You understand this. Good. 
But the lawyer knows what Jesus knows. And that's, you can't just know it. You have to do it. Right? Justify. What needs justification in a lawyer's life? And why is justification needed? And here we see that this reveals the lawyer's insincerity. It's not how can I be a loving neighbor, but rather who? Who? And the lawyer here is trying to exclude responsibility for others by making some people, catch this, non-neighbors. If you have to ask who is the neighbor, that means you have an understanding that some people just are non-neighbors. The lawyer here is attempting to prove his righteousness by excusing his wrong behavior. Verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. The lawyer says, Who is my neighbor? And Jesus starts talking about this man walking down a road. Now, some of us are parents, and now my child only says things like mama, dada, and it's really kind of cute and funny. But one day, she's going to, you know, be able to respond, and she's going to, I'm going to ask her a question, and then she will answer me with the totally opposite answer, right? You guys experience the frustration sometimes? Like, I've asked you a question, and they don't answer the question. They say something else. It's kind of weird, and yep, okay. So Jesus here is doing that to him. He's, you've asked me a clear question, but let me tell you something different. Now, let me show you a picture. Can we show a picture on the screen? I think we have this. All right. The road to Jericho. So this here is a picture of the road Jesus was talking about. And so this would be the road uh, from Jerusalem to Jericho. As you can tell, it's rocky. It has, it has some shadows. It has some ups and downs. And this is just part of it. If you were to zoom out a little bit, you'd see that it kind of winds and it goes up and down. And it's, it's kind of a, a nasty road. Um, the Roman road... This Roman road specifically would be full of hiding places for thieves. This road is 18 to 19 miles long, depending on the timing of of the story. And this was a shortcut road. The understanding here is that people would commonly, they would would have chosen a different path, but it was longer. They would have went uh, by Bethlehem. And so that it was an exemption that they were traveling. uh, I'm sorry, it was an exception that they they were traveling through the wilderness. People didn't normally travel through the wilderness, but this road goes right through the wilderness. And this road was referred to as the way of blood because, quote, of the blood which is often shed there by robbers. Jesus didn't pull this random road out of his head. He's talking with a purpose here. Jesus tends to do that from time to time, okay? He talks with a purpose. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, in our English translation, we understand, okay, we're kind of getting what's going on. But some of us, like nerdy people, love to read Greek and all that. I'm not going to teach you much of Greek today, but there are some key things we can see here, okay? When we see things like going down the road, and particularly like down from Jerusalem, means they're leaving from Jerusalem. If they were saying up to Jerusalem, the idea is that they're going towards Jerusalem, okay? And there's specific words in that play on this is how we translate it. But the idea is this. You have a priest who's a descendant of Aaron who had priestly responsibilities in the Jerusalem temple. What does that matter? Remember the 613 laws. And some of those laws are very specific to priests. Things like if you touch a dead thing, you are you are defiled for seven days. 
Things like if certain, if certain elements happen, you have to then do a ritual to get clean and pure before God. So when a priest walks down the road and saw a man who was stripped and beat in a ditch, and he's going towards Jerusalem, he wouldn't be able to touch him because he's going to be ceremonially unclean. But what does the text say? He was going down that road from Jerusalem. Guys, what we see here is this priest actively turns his face away from someone in need. He wouldn't have been ceremonially unclean. He demonstrated his lack of love and concern for his neighbor. 32, so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. Now understand a Levite, a member of the, same, of the, of the tribe of Levi, uh, not necessarily, um, he's not a descendant of Aaron, he's not necessarily a priest, but they're still holy, they're still kind of elevated. Think of this guy as more of an assistant to the priest. Still had some of the laws that clarified what they're allowed to do. Either way, another Jew. And what happens? He came to the same place and saw him and passed on the other side. He turned his face. 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had compassion. Now the question is, what makes the Levite, the priest, different than a Samaritan? Other than their actions here. Well, let's look. The origin records are kind of scarce and seemingly they're contradictory. We don't really quite know where the Samaritans came from. There's four or five commonly accepted stories. So we're just going to share a little bit of like the most welcomed. Essentially, we know Assyria came into the picture around 722 B.C. They conquered and took over the land of the Old Testament kingdom Israel. And the Israelites were deported. See, the Assyrians, they were kind of savages. They were vicious. You know what they would do? They would come and they would conquer a place, and they would, they would enslave a third of the people, they would kill a third of the people, and then they would leave a third of the people. And normally it was the older generations and the ones that were considered weak. So there was no future. And they came in, and they deported them. And we, and we see that... Uh, they went to Halab, it goes in on the Harbor River and the towns of the Medes, which doesn't mean very much until we understand that Halab was in Assyria, which is north of Nineveh, which is Baghdad today. And you got goes in on the Harbor River, which is actually in Syria today. And the Medes, they lived around modern Hamadan, which is actually in Iran today. And that doesn't mean very much except if you think about the fact that not much has changed in this much time. We turn on the news, and these are places we hear about all the time. And there's still this back and forth and this brokenness and this battle and this struggle. I mean, we realize that all of a sudden the Bible actually has something to offer us about our time. We know the gospel is transcending. We know the Bible is alive. But when we see things like this, we realize, I can relate to this. I see the struggle. I see the battle. I see the conquering back and forth and things changing. One of the things that they would do, the Assyrians, and this is what they would do. They thought, let's just not enslave, let's just not kill, let's just not take. But one way to beat our enemy 
is to breed our enemy out. And the Assyrians, what they would do is, is they thought one quick way to make sure there's no more Jews is to make sure there's no more Jews. And so they'd go in and they would, they would rape the women. They, they would take over, they would conquer, and they would, they would become a new people. And those new people were called the Samaritans. So all of a sudden you have these babies being born and what's happening is you have all these little rugrats running around that are just telling their moms and dads, you were conquered. I got a bunch of landmarks running around saying we are not whole anymore. We were defeated. And if you know the bigger picture, you know why they were defeated. Because they were disobedient to God. Nonetheless, the Samaritans and the Jews were not friends. They were not friends. The Assyrians resettled the land with, with pagan gods. And you would see that, that they were given their own part of the land to establish themselves. And we're told in 2 Kings uh, 17, I'll just read this real quick. It says, but the various groups of foreigners also continued to worship their own gods. In town after town where they lived, they placed their idols at the pagan shrines that the people of Samaria had built. And though they worshiped the Lord Yahweh, they continued to follow their own gods according to the religious customs of the nations from which they came. Now understand, too, because of this battle, there's things that happened, right? Okay, so the Samaritan-Jewish rivalry. Uh, due to a mixed population, both racially and religiously, the Samaritans were forbidden to help with the building of the temple in Jerusalem, which for a Jewish person, even if you're half-Jewish, is a big deal. So they, this caused the Samaritans to build their own temple at Mount Gerizim. And the Samaritans never forgave the Jews for this. And around 128 B.C., the Maccabean Jews invaded Samaria and devastated their land. And guess what? They destroyed their temple. In 6 A.D., a group of Samaritans snuck into the temple in Jerusalem. And remember that law about touch dead things, you be defiled? They spread corpses all around the temple. Later, the Samaritans killed a number of Jewish pilgrims in Ganae, which began a civil war that catched this, was only stopped because the Roman military got involved. The hatred that each group felt for each other was long-standing and deep in Jesus' day. And the Jews had absolutely no dealings with the Samaritans. This should start to help form your idea of like the woman at the well and things like that. This is... This is Back to 33, the Samaritan was the one with compassion. And understand, this doesn't happen. And before studying for this, I always kind of thought that Samaritan was kind of these weak, lowly people. I had no idea that they were like equal fighting forces. 34, he went to him. The Samaritan went to the Jew in the ditch who was beaten up and stripped and, and beaten. He bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Understand, oil and wine were the common healing practices of the day. The alcohol and the wine would clean the cuts and it would make sure there's no infection. And the oil would be used for medicinal purposes, but also to hold the bandages on. See, what we're seeing here is that the Samaritan gave the best physical care he could to the Jew. These people hated each other, and yet he had compassion. Setting the Jew on his own animal, remember, this road is treacherous. We saw the picture, up and down and curves and rocks and things. The Samaritan is going on foot himself in order the Jew would have the easiest way of travel possible. 35, the next day, 
He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The next day. The next day. This shows that they spent some time together. When they finished traveling for the day, they found rest for the they found a spot to rest for the night. What do you think the conversation was like? Two people who don't associate each other with each other because of race and because of religion and because of history. And now here they are spending the night together. We get uncomfortable being in the same room publicly with someone we're not doing okay with. And these people are stuck together one-on-one. I, my brain just goes there. What did they talk about? What, what, did they start sharing things? What, was, was the Jew even able to speak? And I realized this is a parable. However, you have to wonder, like, like what, what would this have been like if these two people had actually been in this position? It says, the next day, that's a long time to spend with someone you don't even associate with. Jesus here is poking and prodding this lawyer's view of what this situation should look like. We see two denarii, and that's about a day's wage for a laborer. It's only about 35 cents. That doesn't even buy a Coke today. But this amount of money would have roughly paid for two months at this inn, which is an incredibly generous gesture, but it also shows the severity of the wounds of the Jew that he would need two months to recover. 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? This is such a skillful question on behalf of Jesus. Remember, the question was, who is my neighbor? And Jesus just gets done sharing this story. And then Jesus answers a question with a question. How frustrating is that? Right? You guys have, we all have people in our lives that frustrate us by answering questions with questions. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Turning the question from who am I to love as a neighbor, who is my neighbor, to who is the man that shows love? This compels the lawyer to give a reply very different from the one he would have liked to give. Not only condemning his own nation, the Jews turned their eye, right? They turned away. But those of them who should be the most commendable the priest, the Levite, the men of God, weren't. And he would have to acknowledge that. And thirdly, he'd make the lawyer commend one of the deeply hated races of the day. The lawyer does it, but it's almost forced. See what he says in verse 37. He said, the one who showed him mercy. What doesn't the Samaritan say? The Samaritan. That would have been profane, heretical. Rather, he says that he that showed him mercy. And it comes to the same conclusion, no doubt, but the fact that the lawyer refusing to even say the word Samaritan is significant here. Jesus, with the one-two punch, says to him in the second half of 37, you go and do likewise. Jesus meets the lawyer halfway. He knows he's not there yet, but he still charges him to go and do likewise. Jesus here is saying, model it, live it. I've just given you a situation. You've acknowledged what the truth is. Now go do it. 
Understanding that I'm telling you as a Jewish lawyer, a scribe, remember, he's not just a normal Jewish man. He's a Jewish lawyer. He, he understands the Mosaic law. He's a scholar. He's a, a, be like the Samaritan. The truth is we have our own Samaritans. As a broken people, we love our grudges. And it'd be easy to finish the sermon with teaching us how to host barbecues and be a friendly neighbor. Smiling and greeting people we live by doesn't make us a biblical neighbor. See, the question is not who is my neighbor. I think in our situation, in our case today, I think the question may be, how can I be a biblical neighbor? How can I be a neighbor that, that, that Christ would want me to be? And I think the recipe is here in the scripture. The, the parable, in, in part, um, first takeaway, Matthew gives us a bigger scope here. Matthew quotes Jesus as saying, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. Um, this is the first greatest commandment. And the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And the entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. One of the things I believe as Christians is, is we have a chance to be salt and light into our communities. I believe we have a chance to, to proclaim truth in places that don't have it. Uh, I believe that we are people who naturally radiate our Savior. But here's what I also believe to be true. Whatever is inside of us comes out. Scripture's pretty clear about the mouth being part of the overflow of the heart. What we're putting into us is what will come out. So if we look at our own neighborhood, what would our neighbors say about us today? As a church, I can say it because I'm not part of Chillicothe Bible Church more than today, but what does our neighborhood around this building think about Chillicothe Bible Church? Park Hills is, is located in Freeport, and Freeport's a beautiful town, but it's separated by West Street, which runs north and south. I'm not sure why. But... It's, it's just 26, all it is. And, and you have, socioeconomically, you have the poor and impoverished on the east side and the wealthy on the west side. And the reality is, is there, there, there is a white side of town and a non-white side of town. And it's something we struggle with, we deal with, because as the church, we are not a white church. We are not a black church. We're not a whatever church. We are the church. And so all of a sudden, when all these different housing projects move around Park Hills Church, we have to ask the question, how do we reach our neighbors? How do we love our neighbors? I know Chillicothe, we have our own issues. We have our own things. We have our own uh, dynamics, our own recipe. But I think the question's the same. How can we be a biblical neighbor? And here's what I think, number two. Being a good neighbor absolutely must start in our church, in this place. But it can't stay here. John tells us, they will know you are my disciples, Jesus is saying this, by your love, and we usually stop there, but here's what it says, by your love for one another. Christians, by your love for one another. But loving outside of the church is just as important. And lastly, just notice some phrases, all right? This is just some, some phrases in the text and some questions. If you want to write down the questions, great. If not, that's okay too. But the phrase, it says, do to inherit. He says, what must I do to inherit? And I have to ask the question, 
what do we inherit? What does anyone inherit? We see eternal life. What does that actually mean? What does it look like? He says, love with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And my question is, who can achieve this standard? Who can actually love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And how is that done? He says, do all that. Do all that I've commanded you. Why did Jesus say this? The question of who is my neighbor? Why did he ask this? And how do I ask this in my own life? Then go and do. Go and do likewise. What would the expert discover if he tried? What would I discover if I tried? The emphasis on eternal life not being accomplished by human effort is very, very prominent here. The emphasis today has been, is, is basically being like the Samaritan. You know, we should be like the Samaritan, but ultimately we have to understand if we just get the bigger scope of things. We are actually, if we want to just theologically speaking, here's where Trinity comes in. We're the Jew in the ditch who's desperately at odds with the person standing over us. Scripture's pretty clear that, that before we are children of God, meaning we, are, we are, have our identity in Christ, we're enemies with God. We're enemies with God. There's this common thought in the world that we're all children of God, and that's just simply not the truth. We're not children of God until Yahweh God becomes our daddy. And the reality is, is faith in Christ and trusting him with eternity but with today, that's how we become children of God. And we deserve the wrath of the enemy standing over us. But that's not who God is if we find our faith in Christ. In Christ, we receive his compassion. The Samaritan had compassion, and our God gives us compassion. If you're here today and you know Jesus, and you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, that no man comes a father but through him, we don't have to live in fear of the person standing over us while we're laying in the ditch. And the reality is, as a Christian, we're not in the ditch. By his wounds, we're healed. We don't have wounds. Not eternal ones, at least. May I encourage you, as we move forward, to just think through, what kind of neighbor am I? Really think through your own life. Who is your neighbor? And, and, and we could give a nice church answer. Of, well, of course. No, 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 no. When we're at Walmart and we run into someone we don't want to see, who is our neighbor? When we see that family member at the holiday, who is our neighbor? There's a whole list of things. You get the point, all right? Can I just pray for you guys? Can I pray for us this morning? God, I thank you for your word and the fact that it does not return void. God, I thank you for getting to meet uh, part of the family uh, today at Chillicothe Bible Church. God, you are so good. And, and Lord, we trust you and we love you. God, for those of us who claim you, Jesus, I pray that we would leave this place today and that we would live a life that's worthy of the calling we have, God, starting with our, our own families and then reaching out to Chillicothe Bible Church and reaching out to our community, God. So God, may we be like the Samaritan, but God, may we be thankful for the fact that when you, uh, you have a chance to be full of wrath, you're full of grace, and you sent Jesus, and you showed compassion through the cross, Lord. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen.